catch up with this. Indy! Indy, you must hurry! Come quickly! It's a leap of faith. Welcome to Wild Week 2. It's going to be a great, great day. Uh, right after service, if you've been coming to Prodigal Church for a little bit and you just want to hear more maybe about our vision, our story, um, who God's called us to be and how to get more connected, I want to invite you to pizza with the pastor after church. It's not that like it's just me. There's other people there. All of our staff are there as well. And so it's going to be a great time hanging out, eating some uh, good pizza. It should be great. Also, next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. And I want you to invite everybody you know because we are celebrating new life in Christ and it's going to be just maybe the best service of the year. And we also have a guest worship leader, uh, Macy Ming from Higher Vision Church in Southern California will be here. And so like her anointing with the band anointing and our team, it's just going to be a double anointing. And so I really encourage you guys to come next week. It's going to be amazing. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, are the biographies of the life of Jesus. They tell us about his life, his teachings, his death, burial, resurrection. Uh, Each gospel tells us the Jesus story from a unique and and different perspective. This will be on the screens. Matthew is told from the Jewish perspective, and so he quotes a lot of Old Testament. Uh, Luke was written from a Greek perspective. Luke is the only non-Jewish author in the entire Bible. Mark tells it from Peter's perspective, and it was also the first gospel written. And then the gospel of John tells it from John's perspective, and it really focuses in, focuses in on the divinity of Jesus. And the word synoptic uh, means uh, to, to view the same, with the same eye, seeing together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. 90% of Mark can be found in Matthew and Luke. So if you've ever read the New Testament, it starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke. You're going to hear the same stories told in almost the same manner, uh, just from a different perspective, a different lens. Uh, Almost 90% of the Gospel of John is unique to John. Uh, and, And so the synoptic sing together Gospels and the Gospel of John. And out of this, the, these four Gospels, these four biographies of Jesus, there is only 11 events that make it into all four. 11 events. Only one miracle. Only one miracle makes it into all four Gospels. Does anyone know which miracle that is? Jesus feeding the 5,000. 
Uh, let's read it together from John's perspective. John 6, it'll be on the screens. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of T- Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked us only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, It would take more than a half year's wage to buy enough bread for each one to have just one bite. Philip's a realist here. Uh, The Bible says there were 5,000 men, which they didn't count women and children. So many scholars believe that there was upwards of 20,000 people here following Jesus. And Jesus says, where shall we buy bread to feed all these people? And there's no Panera, okay? There's, we love Panera at our house. We're there. We're like friends with the management because our kids love the mac and cheese. Um, but Philip gets sarcastic with Jesus. He goes, Dude, Jesus, it would take eight months' salary to buy just enough bread for them to have one bite. What do you mean, where shall we buy bread? Come on, Jesus. So what is Philip's response to the problem? It's, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough money. Uh, And that's the wrong answer. We don't have enough fill in the blank is always the wrong answer. It's always the wrong answer when God's calling us to something. Philip could not see that Jesus could have actually helped the situation. He couldn't see beyond his own power, his own resources, and how to solve what was before us. And we do this too, right? There is no way out of this situation. That's what we say, because because of our infinite or because of our finite mind cannot figure out any possibilities, it doesn't mean that it's impossible. Many times you and I are like Philip. We see a need, we look at our resources, and we realize that we might be powerless to do anything about it. So we don't do anything. We never think of turning over our resources to Jesus. We, maybe, we never think that he can actually do something in us, through us, in the midst of this problem. And Jesus is trying to to stretch the disciples' faith, and he's trying to stretch our faith as well. He wants us to mature. And in order for us, for him to do that, he puts us in situations where it's impossible in our own strength to make it through. If you can do it on your own, it doesn't take any faith. That's what Jesus is doing with the disciples as he's feeding the 5,000. He put them in a situation where if God doesn't show up, Everyone goes home hungry. Hudson Taylor said this, this is on the screens. Unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. If we could do it all by ourselves, is there a need for God? Is there a need for his spirit? Stephen mentioned that earlier, right? I might be weak, but your spirit's strong in me. There's times where God has us in these situations where we are completely at a loss unless God does it. Unless God moves, that's not a bad place to be. Uh, Bob tells the story of him flying a plane and cruising in to land the plane at the San Diego airport. And when you land a plane, I learned this, that there are three lights that need to come on as your landing gear goes down. Three green lights. All three green lights are on. That means all three landing gear wheels are uh, safe and in position to land the plane. So Bob flips all the switches and only two green lights. 
his nose light is missing. And so he kind of tests it again. Nothing happens. And so he uh, talks to the guy on the, on the radio and he goes, uh, Tower, um, I don't think I have a nose wheel. And the guy comes back and he's like, well, just do a flyby. And if, if you ever have watched Top Gun, flybys are the best. And so he's kind of in the Tom Cruise, you know, buzzing the tower uh, kind of vibe. And he goes right past it, but it's at night. And the tower goes, uh, sorry, Bob, uh, we can't see. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? I've only got two options. Either the, the light is malfunctioning and the landing gear really is down. And, but I won't know until I try and land the plane. Or uh, the landing gear is actually broken and I'm going to crash this thing. There was nothing he could do. There were no other options. He needed three green lights. He only got two. You may want 10 green lights before God, before we move to in the direction that God's called us to, but you've only got eight. Uh, that's the MO of God. I venture to say that in the life of faith, most often we do not get all the green lights we want, but we do get all the green lights we need. I once heard a friend say that all opportunities come with expiration dates. If you don't grasp the opportunity in front of you, it's likely going away at some point. Bob says this in his book, all those deep urgings you feel to step toward the beautiful, courageous thing you're afraid to do, you probably won't always have the chance. Now is the time. Your life, your experiences, your faith are your green lights. Make your move. In my own life of faith, I have wanted lots of green lights. The more, the merrier, right? The more green lights of this is what God wants me to do, the better, the more comfortable I am, the more faith I feel like I have. If I'm at, but if I'm absolutely sure God wants me to do something, then it is no longer faith, it is knowledge. And knowledge is actually the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. God knows that without risk, we can't grow. God didn't promise us a safe life but he did promise that he would give us a dangerous, courageous, and purposeful one if we'll stay in tune to his spirit and stay engaged. The moment we take even a tiny shuffle forward, what, what God is already thinking is, I love you, I've got you. You got this, you know enough. Have you ever prayed for God to confirm what you should do? Maybe it's a job switch, maybe it's a move, maybe it's a relationship, but you've prayed God, just tell me. Just give it to me. Show me in a dream. Part the clouds. Lift up my alarm clock just a tiny bit off the nightstand. Just a little bit. I won't tell anyone, but that'll be our sign that you really want me to do this thing. It's like, Lord, just tell me if I'm making the right decision or not. If you've ever been in that situation, that doesn't mean that God's not leading you. I believe it means that he is leading you. He wants you to build this dependence on him. This Indiana Jones like, I don't know, I might fall to my death right now, but I'm going to take this step of faith and trust that God has me. God wants us to take these leaps of faith. If he told you exactly what to do, it's, that's certainty, that's knowing, that's not faith. We prayed for years about planning Prodigal Church, and I can't tell you how many green lights we asked for. God, just make sure. Get all the pieces together. Give me all the green lights. He didn't give me all I wanted, but he gave us enough. 
Is God calling you to something, but you've only been given two green lights? You're waiting for that third. You might be waiting a while. It might be time to take that step of faith and say, God, I'm not certain, but I trust you and I'm taking it. And if you want to know what happened with Bob and landing the plane, it's in chapter 10. You can check it out for yourself. <laughs> Verse 8 of John 6, it says this. We'll continue our story. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will this go among so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Philip's response was not enough. Andrew comes back, and Andrew, the disciple, grabs a little boy, but Andrew's answer is very similar. It's not enough. What, what can we do with five little pita bread and two little sardines? Philip says, it's not enough. Andrew says, it's not enough. And I really sense when it comes to Jesus, not enough is never the right answer. And I just sense this in such a powerful way. Last night as I was praying about today, this something that just God spoke to me and I believe really wanted me to reiterate for someone in particular here and that someone in particular might be you. Uh, that I really sense that we need to say in Jesus' name, enough of not enough. Enough of I'm not good enough. Enough of I'm not spiritual enough enough of I don't have enough, enough of not enough in Jesus' name. Not enough is no excuse to, to not take the step of faith that God's calling us to into the wild world, into the wild calling that God has on our lives. Enough of not enough. Because when placed in the hands of Jesus, our human weakness becomes more than enough. Do we believe this? When I was 19 years old, I lived in Malawi, Africa for six months, and we went to an orphanage called Lucenza, and we had heard rumors about this place, and there was this orphanage with lots of kids, but to get there was a journey and a half. At first, we rode in the back of a windowless truck, and uh, then we get, finally get to this river, and we start getting out, and I'm like, are we there? And they're like, no, 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 we have to cross the river, and I go, we're in a truck, and then they grab these tree bark canoes from the water and they go, we're going to cross in this. And I go, awesome. And like at this point in our trip, I had been there about four months and I thought that once I get to Africa the first time, like I'm going to ride to church on an elephant, you know? And like, I'm going to see a lion over there, but I'm not going to be scared. Hi, Simba. And I'm just going to keep going. And I'm just going to see animals and wildlife everywhere, you know, like wake up every morning, like see a giraffe in the window and I'm like, what's up G? And then I'm just going to see animals everywhere. At this point, four months into this trip, we hadn't seen like anything like big, like no hippos, no crocodiles, no rhinos, no giraffes, no, no nothing. And so 
uh, they tell us that this, 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 this river that we have to cross in tree bark canoes is filled with crocodiles. And I go, awesome. Awesome. Where are they? Are, where, are they around? Are they around? It's still a rock. Let's see if we can get. So we're trying to get these crocs to come out. We don't see any of them. But I get in that river and then my tree bark canoe sinks. And they're like, get out, get out, get out. And I'm like, no, come and eat me. I was 19 and not very smart. Nothing happened. We crossed, we get to Lucenza, uh, and uh, we have to stay in this little hut, and they, uh, they put a mosquito net over our beds, and I sleep, and the next morning, I wake up with 157 mosquito bites. I find out that there's only one mosquito in my net, and he just went to town on me. <laughs> I know the exact number of bites because I counted and recorded it in my journal. There's an African proverb that says this. If you think you are too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. (laughs) So accurate. Even the smallest grain of sand can make a difference. Try running a long distance with one grain in your sock. Destroys you. There's nothing too small that God can't use to bring about love in our world. Nothing too small. No one too small. And Jesus uses this little boy to feed 20,000 people. And it, interesting, in John's version of the story, right, we're back at the Gospels. Every Gospel records this story. John is the only one who brings attention to this little boy with the five barley loaves and the two fish. Can we identify with that little boy? There's a, one child in this large crowd It's intimidating, it's scary, it's challenging. Here's this little boy in the middle of Pharisees, Sadducees, big crowds, big burly fishermen, okay? And here's this tiny little boy. This little boy wasn't even counted among the crowd, right? Because women and children weren't counted. He was so insignificant that he wasn't even counted in the number. It's almost as if he doesn't exist. He's not just just this little boy, he's poor. See, barley was the grain of the poor because it was the cheapest of all the grains, and it was very abundant in Israel. And fish, I always like to, you know, when we hear the story growing up, we had a nice little trout of some sort, two fish, no, sardines, just little, this wasn't a big lunch. In the barley loaves, I think these loaves of bread, he's got, what's this little kid carrying five loaves of bread for? No, 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 it's about five little pieces of pita bread, and two sardines. It's not a lunch. It's, it's a handy snack, okay? You guys know handy snacks? I got a picture there. They're delicious. This is what the boy has. This is what his mother had packed for him when he left home. Here's a poor little boy with the worst sort of bread and a couple of sardines. Then we can understand the miracle in a new way, right? This little boy was probably from a nearby village, He'd been working out in the fields and he heard rumors that this Jesus was coming. And so then this, this big burly fisherman named Andrew comes up to him and says, hey, Jesus needs your lunch. And at first he's like, oh, Jesus needs my lunch. Awesome. And then his honor turns to embarrassment as he looks and it's just two little sardines, this, this little handy snack. And, and he goes, here it is. And it's, it's the, only, it's the only thing that was given. There's no doubt other people had something, but it records that this boy gave 
First he's scared. But then it's pride. Jesus got, I'm, I'm giving this to Jesus. I'm giving what little I have, this little handy snack, I'm giving it to Jesus. I wonder why John makes mention of this little boy. I know that the little boy teaches us that even the most insignificant among us possess the stuff of miracles. It was out of what this little boy gave that became the building blocks to feed 20,000 people to achieve the one miracle recorded in all four Gospels. How many miracles in the world are denied because we won't offer what little we have to Jesus? We have time, we have skills, we have financial resources, we have expertise. We have so much to offer, no matter how insignificant it appears to be. And I want to let you in on a story that started 10 years ago about two 19-year-old kids here in the Central Valley. Um, Brad and Delilah Isaac are, are really doing something. Uh, they're working in Selma uh, with some youth and they've been doing it for a while. So I want to invite Brad and Delilah Isaac to come up to the stage. And they're going to share briefly about some of the wild things that they're doing and how God's using them and has used them here in the valley. Brad and Delilah. Hi, good morning. Um, so when we were just a couple of young college students, uh, my grandfather actually asked us if we'd like to be a part of a church plant um, in a little town, ag town of Selma. And so... Um, for the past eight years, we've been working there um, with the children and the youth ministry. Um, and it started out just as uh, teaching, you know, the stories of Jesus at a summer vacation Bible school. Um, but we got to know this Hispanic neighborhood um, and we got to know all of these kids really well. So uh, at first, you know, we, we were really small and I, I remember there was this constant sense of feeling in inadequacy. Like even as these two, you know, smart young, willing people, we'd get to the neighborhood and we'd see lots of opportunities to serve and lots of needs around us. Uh, and there was this sense of like, we don't know anybody here. We're driving in every week. What, what can we do? And I remember one Sunday in particular, uh, we get in our 1990 Toyota Camry that's constantly breaking down. We get on the 99 and we drive the 30 minutes down to Selma. We get out and we go around and we're knocking on all these doors in the neighborhood trying to persuade kids to come out. And at the end of all of our charm, uh, we got two little girls to show up for church that night. And I remember I'm standing there uh, in church. It's just the four of us, and I'm just turning a jump rope because all they wanted to do is jump rope. And I'm just turning a jump rope, singing along and counting for them. And inside, I'm thinking, this is not what I signed up for. And I remember that night, we get in the car, we're driving home, we're tired, we're disappointed. We've been at this work now for like two years. And you know, I, I remember saying something like, this is the end of the road, like we tried, but, you know, it hasn't worked out, it's over. Well, six years later, this is the most recent picture of the group that we worked with last summer uh, at our vacation Bible school. So uh, we've learned and we've grown along with our neighbors and deepen these relationships as we keep entrusting the precious little that God has given us uh, back into his hands through, through what we can do. Yeah, and others have joined us along the way. Um, like about four years ago, we had a couple who heard that we were picking up kids from the neighborhood and needed some help. Um, and so they brought their RV, and you can see here it is, um, this mobile home to help us transport these kids to and from church. And um, it's been awesome to see all of the kids that have come through there. They recognize the bus um, coming alongside. 
And um, there's just been so much um, multiplication of, of relationships. We've seen a lot of growth, not only with that, but also in individual lives. And some of those kids that were there at that first VBS are now youth, right? Amazing, helping us to volunteer, helping us to teach the younger children now. And that's been really cool to see. So you guys have been serving in Selma, driving 30 miles, being in that community, working your tails off for little to no pay. And you've been doing this for almost 10 years. That's amazing. That's amazing. Give them... Anything else you want to share about maybe how that can pr practically relate to us here as a community? Yeah, so, you know, as you guys see us around here and, and coming on staff here, we want to be a bridge between these two churches. So as, as you see us and as you get to know us, if you would keep uh, this ministry in prayer in our community, and at the end of this month, we're going to do that same program again that you guys saw on screen. We're going to do our VBS, and that's 100% donation-based. Like, we want to make it free to the kids so we can go out and, and take away any excuses they might have, any inhibitions of, of getting them to hear the stories of Jesus. So if there's anything that you guys would be willing to donate, uh, be it waters or snacks or stuff for crafts and games, all that sort of thing, you can get in contact with us either by meeting us after the service today or through Prodigal Church. Guys, thanks so much. Give them another round of applause. That's wild faith. That's wild faith. Brad is on staff with us here at Prodigal, running our student ministries um, and also our life group ministries. And we're so blessed to have both of them as a part of our team. Uh, they're amazing. They're in this story, this feeding of the 5,000. There's multiple miracles happening in this story. One scholar says that this miracle wasn't in Jesus multiplying the fish and the loaves. That this scholar says Jesus actually didn't multiply that. Instead, he inspired the disciples through this boy to give of what they had themselves, and that became abundantly clear to feed everybody. Jesus got his disciples to share from their own provisions that which they had selfishly tucked away. And so the crowd, seeing their generosity, followed suit and shared what they had with others. William Barclay says this, This is a miracle of the birth of love in men's souls. It is a miracle of the awakening of fellowship in men's souls. It is the eternal miracle of Christianity, whereby a miscellaneous crowd of men and women become a family in Christ. Now, I think that Jesus literally multiplied the bread and the fish. But if he instead used the sacrifice of this little boy to multiply love in the hearts of 20,000 people, is it any less miraculous? No. I want to invite Stephen and the worship band to come up as we close with this. There's this ancient fable uh, told where, um, um, in a place where men were allowed to have multiple wives. And a middle-aged man had one wife that was old and one wife that was young. And each loved him very much. And desired to see uh, him like herself. And he wanted to please both of his wives. And so he catered to their every whim. Now the man's hair was turning gray. Uh, which the young wife did not like. Because it made him look too old for her husband. And so every night she used to comb his hair. And pick out the white ones. But the elder wife saw her husband growing gray with great pleasure. For she did not like to be mistaken for his mother. And so every morning, she used to arrange his hair and pick out as many of the black ones as he could. The consequence was the man soon found himself entirely bald. And the moral is fairly obvious. If you give to all, soon you will have nothing to give. 
How much better is it to remain true to Jesus and give him everything? Don't give everything to your job. Give everything to Jesus and he'll give you back something beautiful in your job. Uh, He can change your job from a life-draining place to a life-giving place. Don't give everything to your family. Give your family to Jesus and he gives it back to you with more love, more reconciliation, more forgiveness, more mercy, more compassion. Don't give everything to your marriage. Give your marriage to Jesus and you begin to love your spouse as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The best gift we can give this world is to abandon it for Jesus so he can send us back into the world to love it like Jesus. Give your handy snacks to the Lord. Every every ounce of it. And just see what he can do in multiplying the love in your own heart and in the lives of others. Take that leap of faith. The bridge might look invisible. You might really sense that God's calling you to something, but you've only got two green lights. Maybe you've only got one and you're asking for more. This could be the third green light. This very morning might be God stirring in your heart. Okay, I got two. It's time to take that step of faith. I don't know what it means for you, but God does. And for those of you specifically in here, where not enough has been your story, the Holy Spirit of the living God is saying to your heart right now, enough of not enough. I'm enough. I'm enough. A song I used to sing in high school, all of you is more than enough for all of me. Yes, he's more than enough. Father God, I pray in Jesus' name that that we would know that you are more than enough. And God, that you call us in this life of faith, this journey where we don't have all the answers. We don't get all the green lights we want. We're not certain. We're, We're wondering, God, have you really called us to this? God, I pray that in Jesus' name that we would take that step of faith and know that you're moving through us, you're moving in us, and that you want to build that dependence on us. So it's not about certainty. It's not about knowing. It's about faith, wild faith. Move, God. So God, as we come to the altar, as we surrender ourselves to you, as we surrender our handy snacks, as we surrender our families and our marriages and our jobs, we surrender them to you, God, and ask for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make us who you called us to be, God. Shape us into the character of Jesus. More love, more compassion, more mercy, more grace. And we can't do it without you. We're at the end of ourselves. And that's where you shine brightest. God, your word says that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. For when we are weak, then we are strong. Thank you for that truth. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close with this song, declaring that the Father's arms are open wide. Oh, what a say.